September 6, 1941, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. On Bosichkova Market, people were given five minutes to pack. They dragged bundles wrapped in sheets. Some just dragged the bundles over the stones. Soldiers drive them like cattle. People say that going into the ghetto is like entering a darkness. Thousands stand in line and are driven into a cage. People are driven, people fall down with their sacks, and the screams reach the sky. The mournful trek of being driven out of your home into the ghetto lasts for hours. Listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. Chapter 4 The Ghetto. In this episode, you'll hear diary entries of Hermann Kruk and the voices of Henny Dermashkin Gurko, Mira Berger, Vera Goldman, Sheila Zvani, Abram Zheleznikov, Mira Verbin, William Begel, and Samuel Bach. So I was with my mother in the apartment, trying to move as little as possible. And then I remember very well, on a very rainy day, the police came, German police and Lithuanian police, and they told us to take a suitcase, something that we could carry, and to go down, and that we had to leave the apartment. And my mother started to, in a very panicky way, to take things and put in a, in a small suitcase. And then there was not enough place in that suitcase, so she took another one. And she started, she took my hand and we walked through the door of the apartment. And then she remembered all of a sudden something and she ran back and she took a pillow from the bed. So she took the suitcase, me and the pillow. And we went down, and then in the courtyard of this big apartment house, there were many of our neighbors that were Jews standing there, all quite amazed and uncertain of what was going to happen. It was raining, and somewhere we were getting soaked, and nobody really thought about opening an umbrella or so. And uh, when they have brought down all the Jewish uh, occupants of that uh, apartment house into the courtyard, we were told to go into the street. And there I saw a, a sort of a caravan of people walking on the road, because we were not permitted to walk in, on the sidewalk. And on the road, near the sidewalk, of course, with this enormous rain, it was full of water, and everybody was walking in the water. And they were just walking, you know, like a procession. Everyone carrying something. And I, I had a pillow in my hand, and this pillow became more and more soaked, and it started to become so terribly heavy that at a certain point I threw it away. And the ghetto was established. It was a very pathetic uh, picture of people walking to the ghetto, 
holding all their bundles and they could hardly walk. A lot of people couldn't continue holding their stuff and they were dropping a lot of packages in the streets. The ghetto was built in the Jewish, the former Jewish center of the city. There were a few narrow streets, like two long narrow streets and connecting short streets. So here they built a wall, a real tall wall. Any house that had a doorway to the outside, to the street which was not included in the ghetto, they blocked it with, with bricks. They divided the ghetto in two parts. And th there was ghetto number one and ghetto number two. Now with my mother, with this little suitcase, we arrived to an area which was uh, once a very heavily uh, populated area of the poorer part of the town, where, where, where mostly uh, Jews lived. What has happened there the day before is that the police has taken out all the people who lived in that area and all those apartments were empty and when we came into that part we were among I think maybe the first who came into that part of the, of the city every apartment looked like as, as if people went out just five minutes ago there were things on the tables uh, coffee uh, which people have not finished to drink uh, food uh, in the kitchen that was just standing there, um, some hungry cats uh, moving around, uh, clothes on, on a chair near a bed. I mean, you could feel that people are still living there. When we came into the ghetto, some of the houses, it was like, how could you survive seeing that here is still the hot milk? And here is still from the baby the bottle. And here is still the bed where the people went out. When we came to the ghetto, we were four of, four of us, and my grandma was, and, uh, and other, you know, family. How we got there a place, our, this aunt and uncle, the children, they took in the middle of the night. So we took their apartment, we went in their apartment. That's why, you know, we had a place where to stay. We lived in one room, you know, a couple of families, because it wasn't any place. Everybody slept on the floor. When we came to the ghetto, the gate was about to be completed. Everybody was assigned to a different street, and it was a terrible, terrible commotion. I was extremely disoriented and I was shivering because I was completely, I was wet. And we met somebody there who saw me and he said, but this boy is, uh, is shivering and he needs a coat. And he stood near an apartment which was of his daughter and his grandchildren. And um, he went into that apartment, he took out a coat, he said, this is of my uh, grandchild, take it and I have put on this coat. And I wore this coat for the next four years of a boy, I didn't know it by then, who wasn't anymore alive. September 7th, 
The first night in the ghetto. Soaked in my own sweat, at about 11.30 at night, I fell back to sleep. The wet cellar didn't bother me. The hard bundles I was half sitting, half lying on didn't disturb my sound, drunken sleep. I am not in this world. I am in a cage that was once the entrance from Zavalna to Strashun Street. The streets are flooded full of people and People are being pushed in from the city regularly and incessantly. The streets were full of people. It was pure chaos. We ended up in some room of some apartment. People were arriving and arriving. It became extremely crowded. It was very difficult to breathe there. And uh, my mother found... Um, a corner of a sofa where she has put herself with me close to her. I even remember something very funny because there was a Jewish woman with her husband sitting just next to me and she started all of a sudden to touch her, her purse, the pockets of her coat and she says, oh my god, I've forgotten the keys of the apartment. People had still normal reflexes. At a certain point, my mother took me and uh, kept her arm around my head and went out. One of the men decided to hang himself. One of my friends lived in the street on Strashuna, where I used to come a lot to her also and do the homework with her. Her mother was a widow and she had two daughters and they lived in the street. So when they brought us to the ghetto, I thought naturally I'll go to Myra's house because I'll feel comfortable there. I walk up to the apartment and I'm asking where they are, the Myrans are, where are they? They're not there. I'm asking people. The night before, they took out the whole street of Jews, put them against the wall and shut them. And she was one of them. The family was one of the people because they needed room. So this is how they got rid of them. So we lived in this apartment. It was very hard, but I ate her preserves, her mother's preserves that she prepared for the winter. I don't know how I did it, but we were so hungry. We were lucky to come to Ghetto One, but by the time we arrived, we could only sit down in a hallway. The three of us sat down on our packages in a hallway. And night came and we cuddled the three of us together in a corner of that hallway. In the middle of the night, it turned out, the Germans came in and they collected all the people who were in the streets and they told them, you are being moved to ghetto too. You are here by mistake. Instead, they took them to Lokishkin, to Ponare, and they killed them. By morning, there was much more room, much more room. After a few days, 
My mother succeeded to get out from the ghetto. I, I don't remember for what reason. We went to a relative of ours. This relative uh, was actually my mother's aunt, which was kidnapped as a child by a Polish-Russian aristocratic family, baptized and uh, brought up as their own daughter. This was something that was permitted in the Russia of the Tsar. So there she grew up as a child of, uh, of this Polish-Russian uh, uh, small aristocracy. But she had always a very strong feeling for her brother, who was my grandfather. And she happened to be in Vilna when the war broke out. So um, we, came, we went over to her and we asked her what she could do for us. And she said that she will, she will try to hide us. Since she was brought up in a Benedictine monastery where they had a college for girls, she knew there the sisters of that uh, monastery. And uh, the sisters agreed to hide us in the closed part of the monastery. Now, this is a strange coincidence. This monastery was just the building in front of the apartment house where I lived. And little by little, my aunt uh, succeeded to have, I mean, my mother's aunt succeeded to have my mother's sister, her husband, and also then my father, who meanwhile escaped from the camp, be accepted in the closed part of the monastery. Now we were hiding there. The nuns gave us a room in relatively comfortable conditions. We had beds, we had things to eat, and um, we had a daily lesson in the Catholic religion. I suppose my parents were very happy with it because they thought that if on some further occasion I may be hiding somewhere else, maybe with some Christian people, it is very good that I have a proper education in the Catholic religion. I don't know if it was for that or if it was just to please the nuns who felt that they were saving us both ways, saving us from the Germans and saving us from a wrong religion. I think they thought it will please them. Then we spent several months there while some terrible things were going on in the ghetto. Men look for their wives and wives for their husbands. Children ask for their parents and parents look for their children. But it becomes clear that many people have not reached the ghetto. Are they just in prison? Eighty old people have lain for three days and three nights now in a store on Strachun. Nobody takes care of them. They lie on a stone floor and die of hunger. In a space where 4,000 people used to live, there are now 29,000. It is no wonder that thousands of residents fill the streets, 
The low-ranking German officer Schweinenberg, the real boss of both ghettos, can't stand it. The scene annoys him, and he orders the street cleared. Today, he drove into the ghetto at top speed, running over a woman and a child. Suddenly, the German authorities decided to ease the crowding of the ghetto and took 3,550 persons out, ostensibly transferring them to Ghetto 2. But only 600 persons arrived there. What happened to the 2,950 people? Where are the rest? What's happening to them now? People immediately were taken for, to, for work. The able-bodied men were called out of the ghetto and they were put to work in several factories for the Germans. Those people, those lucky ones who got, it was called a shine, a certificate which permitted them to go out of the ghetto and come back to the ghetto. Those who didn't have such a shine could only offer somebody who did have such a shine, listen, I want to sell a pair of shoes. I want to sell this. So this is how trade went on. Those who went out of the ghetto were meeting the Christian population, and the trade was going on. I was assigned to work in a group for what worked for the Hitler use. The work was not very productive. The radar gave us work to carry stones from one place to the other. They beat us very often. They were always announcing new and different types of certificates. A blue certificate, and then the next day, another color. One day, they announced that everyone had to have a yellow certificate. Shine for life, for families of a husband, a wife, and two children. They distributed only some certificates, and there was a rush of theft and chaos to receive one. I met a school friend of my younger sister's. He told me he was looking for us, and he said, I have a shine, and I will take your sister as my wife, since I have a shine. But he told us that according to the rules of the shine, he could not live apart from his quote-unquote wife, and his parents did not allow him to have a wife without marrying her. My mother said, children, do what you want as long as you stay alive. So they went to some rabbi and got married, and she moved in with him. When we come in the ghetto, we heard the story about the Judenrats. This was the German system. They come over, they forced the Jews to make a Judenrat. They killed the first people under any pretext. Even if the, if the Judenrat was working 100% under the orders, they find a pretext to kill them off because they want to frighten the next ones. The Nazis had also demanded the creation of a Jewish police force to keep order in the ghetto and eventually to help carry out their actions. The Judenrat appointed a man named Jakob Gans as head of the Jewish police. Gans was a Lithuanian Jew 
what in the beginning of the 20s was an officer in the Lithuanian army. The wife was not Jewish. She was a Lithuanian. He himself considers himself as a Lithuanian. September 18th. The Jewish police have a livelihood. If you stand at the gate, you take money for letting people bring in a package. If you walk into the city, you bring bundles that Jews left with Christian friends, and you take bribes for this, too. In short, the Jewish police do business. The homes of the Jewish police are full of everything. Bread, butter, fat galore. We worked in that German outfit. It was uh, L for Luftwaffe or, uh, or Air Force. Uh, 27341. I was working there. I was at that time in 1941. I was 14 and I was the kitchen boy. I was chopping wood for the field kitchens. I was killing chickens. Uh, I was uh, helping with the big boilers to make soup and coffee and water. And I learned to speak German very quickly. And uh, last but not least, I learned to steal. We had to unload uh, the food that ranged from uh, sardines to uh, marmalade and all the things that were obviously not available in the ghetto uh, to just plain bread. And I have organized this stealing detail uh, where everybody at the end of the day uh, would go home with a, uh, a very nice supplement of food. We took like a pillowcase. If you took the sewing machine and you sewed straight lines, you got channels. And we would sit there during our lunchtime and pour the flour into those channels. And we made sure that we could put it on, and we tied it around our body. All of us lost weight, and our coats were big enough to accommodate our body plus the flower around. And uh, we were carrying it, those two, two, three kilometers which we had, and we were coming to the gates. There were Jewish policemen which were supposed to, to make sure that nothing is smuggled in. They did not uh, touch us to find out whether we have uh, flour. Only, only if, if German soldiers were, they would touch and try. And a friend of mine uh, was taken, was caught with some flour, and she was taken to Lukishki and was killed. all kinds of actions going on. An action in the ghetto meant that this was a time where you took out Jews and told them all kinds of stories and actually took them to be killed. They would come to the Judenrat and they would say they need 1,000 Jews. And they wanted the Judenrat to, to make the selection. You had to be attached to somebody that worked in a special unit because there were just so many people that could be attached to one sign, a shine if Yiddish it's called. So my brother uh, had a, 
had one, got one for me and my mother. My sister went with, uh, with, an, uh, with a neighbor. A group of us uh, got a job going out of the ghetto. And uh, we went out, we slept there, we worked during the day. Came the next day, my sister was there. My father was not there, he was taken to Lokishki. I became so wild. I came into my mother and said, give me all the jewels, everything you got, I'm gonna have to save daddy. And I was running to the gates and begging the Nazis to save my father. I gave him, she says, give me this and give me that. I gave him all, all our values. And he said, tomorrow I'm bringing him back. He never came back. We heard that all the people from Lukishki were taken to Panari and they were shot. September 30th, Kol Nidre. This Yom Kippur Eve in the ghetto is unique. In the apartments, people are cooking in big pots as if nothing is the matter. People are washing and scouring as if everything around them is normal. People go to Kol Nidre service. Kol Nidre must be over by 6.30 in the evening. The Judenrat ordered this. People recite Kol Nidre in the dark here. The prayer houses are full to bursting. People stand on the steps, in front of the entrance, the courtyard, the street, everything is bursting, everything is desolate. Jews come to me in the library and ask me to lend them prayer books. This was the action of Yom Kippur 1941. In the middle of the night, they waked up all the ghetto and said that people would want to get their papers have to go to the entrance of the ghetto and get their, uh, their papers. October 1st. At about nine in the morning, the Gestapo came into the ghetto and started snatching people for work. Jews in prayer shawls ran through the streets looking scared. The prayer houses emptied out. Everyone looked for a hole to hide in. At about three in the afternoon, the Gestapo demands 1,000 Jews. In the ghetto, there is an indescribable commotion the police hunt and chase. The residents hide wherever they can. I tried to hide. And I went up on the top of the roof of the Judenrat, and I tried to get in in a chimney. And another Jew saw what I am doing and tried to do the same thing when he was older than me and he was not so quick, and a Lithuanian saw it. He went over, arrested the Jew, had a look in the chimney, saw me, took me out of the chimney, I was all black. He beat me up and I was in blood and threw me out from the stairs to the courtyard. My mother and uncle, along with 50 people, were hiding in a melina. When we came back from work, we went to check on our mother. They found the hiding place, took everyone out. I was standing like a statue by the hole, as if my brain was drained. And my sister was screaming, Mother, where are you? For one day only, 
they really went from house to house and whoever they found, whomever they found, they took and those, those people never, these people never returned. And then they said, after this action, there will be no more actions. Those who prefer to, to believe them, believe them. But there was really no choice. You had to believe them because what else could you do? When you were endangered, you know, any, any, any minute of the day, every minute of the day, when we were going out of the ghetto and we were looking around and looking at the poles, we were wondering why. Why are they free? Why are they allowed? We were kids, and why are they allowed to do things and we're not? And uh, we saw a world and we were locked in those narrow streets. December 26th. It is barely minus eight or 10 degrees Celsius. People look at every piece of wood with pity. Not a small thing in the ghetto, a piece of wood. No wonder then that the poorer ghetto residents rip wood right off the wall. People rip boards up from the floor. They burn doors with the frames. They cut up stairs from abandoned houses. By the winter of 1941, every family had members who were missing, especially older people and young children. While some hoped the worst might be over, others suspected that the worst was yet to come. In the early hours of the new year, a young man named Abba Kovner a member of the Zionist youth movement Hashomer Hatzair, stood in front of a crowd of young people at a New Year's gathering. He delivered a speech. Jewish youth, do not be led astray. Of the 80,000 Jews in the Jerusalem of Lithuania, only 20,000 have remained. Before our eyes, they tore from us, our parents, our brothers and sisters. Where are the hundreds of men who were taken away for work by the Lithuanian snatchers? Where are the naked women and children who were taken from us in the night of terror of the provocatia? Where are the Jews who were taken away on the Day of Atonement? Where are our brothers from the second ghetto? All those who were taken away from the ghetto never came back. All the roads of the Gestapo lead to Panari, and Panari is death. Doubters! Cast off all illusions. Your children, your husbands, and your wives are no longer alive. Panari is not a camp. All are shot there. Hitler aims to destroy all the Jews of Europe. The Jews of Lithuania are fated to be the first in line. Let us not go as sheep to slaughter. It is true that we are weak and defenseless, but resistance is the only reply to the enemy. Brothers, it is better to fall as free fighters than to live by the grace of the murderers. Resist to the last breath. In this episode, you heard from Samuel Bach, Henny Dermashkin-Gurko, Mira Berger, 
Vera Goldman, Sheila Zvani, Abram Zelesnikov, William Begel, and Mira Verbin, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Rachel Botchen. You also heard diary entries of Hermann Crook, read by John Cariani, and the English translation of Abba Kovner's speech, originally in Yiddish, read by Arnie Burton. Next up, Chapter 5, Ghetto Life. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Rouse and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Liova Zerbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Rouse. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. <laughs>